Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Helper. And uh, what is this, like month nine of the world sucking right now? Yeah. It's just relentless. Uh, oh, in addition, Katie Katie is sick. And we're yeah. we're gonna we're humoring her by telling her that she has nothing to worry about and it's not COVID. I mean, it's a cold. Right. Of course it is. Eddie Van Halen died. Yeah. Which is uh, is really sad for me. I don't know. I mean, Prince, David Bowie. How is Keith Richards still alive? I know. Those are dead. I think because he snorted his dad's ashes. <laughs> did he do that? Yeah. Apparently Keith he did. did. Yeah. Does that work? Well, that's what uh, I'm thinking. I don't think he did it for health reasons, but I wonder if that gives you some kind of, you know, immunity or something. Uh, my father's still alive, so I can't. I can't use oh, that yeah. option. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, very sad. Uh, read up a lot, I, but a lot of things I didn't know about uh, Eddie Van Halen this week. The story that he that he went in and did the beat it solo in one take. Like I don't I don't know if that's true or not, but I I'm gonna just assume it is true because I like that story. Right. Read up on tapping which I, I didn't really know i'm not a guitarist so i don't know what that is but uh you know his mastery of that technique right. you know what but, tapping is well i thought it was that thing that you do to like like it's a method for brain stuff no 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 I, I, well I, I mean i think we can actually do a demonstration here can't we whoa dan, dan do we have a guitar yeah so guitar tapping instead of either plucking with a pick or with your fingers so when you take your right hand if you're a right-handed guitarist and actually tap on the fretboard to play notes along with your left hand. So that's a Van Halen thing. He so that's a Van Halen play. thing. Nice, nice. So we're, it's it's a jolly time, right? And we had a lot, a lot of crazy stuff happen this week. We have got a, a great guest, longtime friend of show, uh, David Sirota is going to join us, talk about uh, all kinds of stuff. I guess we probably should just dive into... Yeah. Everything that happened, four food groups this week is going to be, uh, it's going to be rich. It's Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that weird? And I'm up, right? It's Democrats yeah. suck. Look, Donald Trump got sick. He, had, he got COVID. It was one of 10,000 dramas that felt like, you know, they were going to go on for a century that happened every, seemingly every 10 minutes in this country now. Yeah. Um, and there are a thousand things to talk about and we're, only starting here because the show is set up this way with Democrats suck right. first. But uh, I just the the one thing there there were, there were so, so many incredible reactions to Trump getting sick. Now Trump Trump's own behavior during this entire uh, narrative was was crazy, and we're going to get into all of that. But um, but the reactions were also nuts, uh, and they're all over the place. But th this one by Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Uh, really kind of blew my mind. And this is him talking on uh, on CNN about what was now going to happen now that uh, Trump was uh, sidelined with COVID. Now trying to use U.S. persons and uh, fake websites in order to uh, proffer a narrative that helps President Trump's reelection. And I also think that you have to be, you know, much more serious about the Russian threat given today's news. If President Trump can't be out there on the campaign trail for the next two weeks, then he is going to rely on his surrogates. And unfortunately, one of his surrogates is Vladimir Putin. So you are likely going to see this campaign ramped up by Russia over the next few weeks to try to substitute for the president's absence on the campaign campaign trail and my worry okay. is that the intel agent i mean he he, he kind of just said that and ran off into the next topic but basically what a, a u.s senator is saying in this passage is 
uh, Donald Trump so is going to be out of commission. And because he's um, because he's one of the, he's effectively an agent of Russia, right. Coach Putin is going to have to sub in uh, some stepped up you know, interference operations because Trump is on the bench. Uh, right. with a, with an injury. And you can say that now on American television without even blinking. And I, I get that there are a lot of people who are hopped up about the Russia thing. And, but you, you can't, <laughs> you can't just call the guy a Russian agent uh, on television and not back it up. And, you know, and the way they set up this thing is all, it, you know, talking about what committees he's on and, 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 you know, you're a Senator, you've seen the intelligence, but it's the same trick they've done for four years. And it just, it's infuriating. The, the Russia angle, it, it was odd, like even in the context of the last four years, which have often featured conspiratorial stories that came out of nowhere, for, for them to drop it in the middle of this thing, where it, it just, just felt unnecessary, as you point out, like there's plenty of stuff to talk about in terms of Trump's behavior. And, and I, you know, I, I think this is, this is a moment that probably could have lost them the election for, for a variety of reasons, because it's going to hurt him very badly with one of his key constituents, the elderly, right? Right from 2016. But instead of talking about that, they've they've really made an effort in the last couple of weeks to step up this whole idea that there's a there's an increased interference campaign coming up, and you know to try to tie it somehow to the COVID thing. So it's bad. like it's such a reach. But anyway, I mean, anyway. I guess yeah. now we know that Putin's going to be stumping. He's going to be on the campaign trail because uh, because. Trump is not available. I mean, that's effectively what they're saying. It's like, oh yeah, Bi- Biden's sick, so they're go- they're going to send out, you know, Michelle Obama, and you know what I mean. But you know, in this case, it's Putin. You know, yeah. that's that's what they're saying. I it's- mean, wouldn't they be happy? I-, I I thought that maybe if he's sick, that would make him less available to have his like daily con daily chats with Putin. Uh, right. Yes. You could you could infer that, right? Like this is a good thing. He's 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 going to be too sick to conspire. Right. But, uh, but there's not that. But it, it actually ended up being worse. And we'll get into more of that later. But um, that, I thought that was, you know, strictly from the Democratic Party side. That part of it was nuts uh, for, for Murphy. Murphy. Murphy's been a little bit unhinged lately right. on this subject, which could mean a lot of things. Maybe he maybe he did see some piece of intelligence that has him geeked up like this. And but, uh, you know, he's either going to tell us what that is or or not be like this because it's crazy. Well, no, but of course he will. He will continue to be like this, and the media will never actually say anything about it, right. um, because that's how it's going to be. And uh, Dems are going to Dem, and uh, MSNBC is going to MSNBC, and CNN is going to CNN. So yeah, it should it should be surprising, but it's not. And also, I just just really quickly, I have to say that I really encourage people to watch this Jimmy Dore video that he did, where he goes through. Speak of Democrats suck. He goes through a Kara Swisher interview with um, Nancy Pelosi, where Nancy Pelosi just like absolutely has no intention and just wears it on her sleeve that she's just not doing anything about Trump and not doing anything to oppose him. And this is an interview that's from um, a sympathetic interviewer who starts out the interview by saying how awesome Nancy Pelosi is and powerful she is and how awesome and powerful her powers are. And even she is like, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to, you know, actually have what policies, what tools are you using? And um, Pelosi just doesn't say any. She doesn't say any. And Swisher's even like, well, what if uh, Trump 
hands out stimulants. Polosi's like, he just wants to hand out checks with his name on it. And Swisher's like, well, with all due respect, let him. Why does that matter? Yeah. Let him. And she even asked her about her theatrics and who her audience is for them. I mean, it's unbelievable. So anyway, I really recommend it. No, I mean, it. look, look the, 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 the news that they, they couldn't come to an agreement on the relief package was a big deal. Trump took like four different positions in the same in the space of the same three or four hours on right. the whole thing. He abandoned negotiations. Then he, then he went back and he's like publicly negotiating on Twitter. He's like tagging his own, his own uh, staff members uh, as though they're hearing it for the first time through social media. Um, the stock market took a big dive when they, they called off negotiations and it's right. Whose fault is it? You know, probably Trump's right. But it's pretty clear that the Democrats um, are, probably a hair more concerned than they need to be about giving Trump a political win at this moment. It's just incredibly frustrating. Like just just for once, you'd like to uh, click on the news and and see that our government is behaving in a non-sociopathic manner in order to actually get people help in the middle of a crisis. But, uh, you know, and whose fault is that? Probably both of their faults. But Anyway, it's frustrating. But what do we have for Republican sucks? Oh, there's so much for Republican suck. But um, <laughs> I thought we would go with this story about uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I want to be very clear that this is not a story that I think that the Democrats should be highlighting. This is just for internal uh, views only. Um, so, guys, don't spread this among uh, Republicans. In other words, like, this is not a good way to convince people. And, and in fact, we're going to talk with our guest today about how the Dems uh, talk about cultural issues uh, in a way that actually probably lets uh, Trump's uh, Supreme Court nominees uh, get confirmed instead of the economic issues that could actually galvanize people to oppose them. But I have to say, and this is, so again, this is not something that the Dems should talk about, but it is kind of scary. And if we could just look at the uh, Democracy Now! story. So it turns out uh, that Amy Coney Barrett served as handmaid in the secretive religious group. So we know that Amy, um, ACB, as I like calling her, because it's just easier, uh, we know she's in this interesting sect. And again, don't talk about this Dems. Diane Feinstein, when she said like, I believe the dogma is alive in your soul. Like that probably just excited the base. Like that's a great, like, I think, and they actually like made t-shirts. that was like the, the, uh, the, I carry the dogma in my soul, but um, it's such a damnest thing. Like we're going to make fun of someone for being religious. Although to be fair, this is a kind of weird religion. So that could play well among people who don't like weird religions. So um, more details have emerged about Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's involvement in the secretive, highly patriarchal religious group, People of Praise. Members of the group pledge a lifelong loyalty oath, assigning each member a personal advisor known as heads for men and, until recently, handmaids for women. Evidence emer- has emerged that both Barrett and her mother have served as handmaids within the group. Meanwhile, The Guardian has revealed that Barrett once lived in the home of the co-founder of People of Praise while she was in law school at Notre Dame. So I just think it's a little bit scary to have a handmaid, our first handmaid uh, Supreme Court nominee. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's probably not a reference to the to the book. It's probably a, a more a, a much older usage that's, right. that survives. So um... Yeah, I just don't like handmaid. I mean, look, the the word means what it means, right? And 
uh, you know, it implies subservience, and that's why they're using the word patriarchal. But right. I, well, the only thing that make, makes me uncomfortable about this story is that I know absolutely nothing about this this group, what they're right. like. It's it's one thing to talk about Opus Dei, or you know, like the cult that because there's an awesome amount of literature about that and lots and lots of people testifying about what you know what what happened in there but this is a relatively small organization and it it, it could be that bad i don't know it's just that I, I i i worry that it's a it's an archaic usage that's or that's probably been around for a while and right i mean i'm gonna go to the famous um very uh respected scholarly website wikipedia uh-huh um and uh Handmaiden, handmaid or maid servant is a personal maid or female servant, depending on culture or historical period. A handmaiden may be of slave status or may be simply an employee. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. It, 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 it. She could be, it could be very it's, it's good a subser- uh, it's labor. A subservient labor partner, right? Or like somebody who is in your employee who is. Uh, subservient right so you know or do you want to call yourself a handmaid i don't know like you people can handmaid identify that's up to them and also a lot of religions you know basically place a lot of emphasis on you know self-abnegation and service and all these things right. of course the the idea of doing it with reference to men is one thing i i just don't know what's going on in this in this religion so the whole thing makes me uncomfortable also right. i can't i can't pronounce her name i keep wanting to call her amy Harry Conehead and not Amy yeah. Coney, Coney Barrett. But can we can we call her that? Can we call her Amy Amy Harry Conehead for now? On? Yeah, I think okay. that's fine. Or All Amy right. ha- Amy Harry Colon. I don't know <laughs> why Harry that just came Cohen. into my head. Although that doesn't make any sense. Amy <laughs> could Harry, you probably yeah. have Celia in your colon. Yeah. Right. Oh my God, Celia. Yeah, the thing that that are killed when you smoke and it and it d- lowers your sense of smell. Is that true? They're lowered. Yeah, they kill them off somehow when you smoke. Yeah. Huh. They line your yeah. yeah. I'm probably killing my cilia right now by blowing my nose so much. But um, no, just to, again the range of handmaids in Abrahamic texts. It is applied to a female servant who serves her mistress, as in the case of the famous case, of course, of Hagar, um, being described as Sarah's hand, Sarai's handmaiden, and these mistresses gave their handmaid to their husband to wife. To bear his seed. Then moving over to Christianity, and this is where it gets good for a- ACB. It's the mother of Jesus is a handmaid of the Lord. So that's not as bad to be the virgin mother of Jesus. Well, if you're going to be if you're going to be a handmaid, it might as well be to the Lord and not just to some guy. Right, right some rando. Yeah, you don't right, want to be that. Rando. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. There, yeah. there are levels to this thing. Yeah, there's honor in being uh, the Lord's handmaid. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. But um, I'll give you something just really quickly. Uh, in other Supreme Court news, reading a democracy now again, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have come out strongly against same-sex marriage and indicated the court's 2015 decision legalizing it should be overturned. They issued the statement on Monday when the court turned down an appeal by a Kentucky County clerk who was sued after refusing to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Wait, is that that Kim woman? Kim Davis. Do you remember this? Yes, I do remember that story. So her case is coming up. She was amazing. I really liked her. Yeah. Yeah. She was married like three times to the same, and two of the marriages were the same guy. Um, And she also had kids. I don't care, but she had kids quote, you know, out of wedlock. Um, Again, I don't care about this stuff at all. Um, 
but it's just funny for a woman who cares about family values that much. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's fair game, right? Yeah. So lots of stuff. And then we're going to get into all the COVID craziness yeah. that the Republicans indulged in this week. And there's some pretty amazing photographs on that score, including some with Amy Harry Conehead or Harry Colon or whatever her yeah. name is. So for, uh, for Isn't That Terrible, we have a little bit of an uh, anticlimax here because you, you sent me a story that you thought would horrify me, but I had a completely opposite reaction to it. Dan, if we could call up the KFC video. Uh, yeah, I thought maybe you would have a, yeah. I thought maybe you'd think it was awesome. Is that what you think it is? <laughs> so the, the, the news story here is that some, somebody who works at KFC videotaped the process of making the gravy and it went viral because everybody thought it was so disgusting so let's just look at the video first of all i mean like people are supposedly grossed out because the process is they're dumping the stuff called cracking in the or crackling yeah which is like leftover bits of stuff you know chicken things and they put that in a in a in a big bin and then put water in and flour and grease and mix it all up and put it in a in, a, in an oven and I guess people think it's gross. That that video made me want to mainline this stuff. I am completely against uh, the idea that this, this is this is supposed to be off-putting. I think it's amazing. I mean, I guess, you know what, and I feel kind of bad given all that's happening um, that I put that as, isn't that terrible? Maybe it should have been, isn't that weird? But it's, it just looks pretty gross to me. And yeah, it's made of chicken. I mean, they what are they doing? They're basically blending chicken bits. Yeah. Okay. So if we want to get into the whole yeah, mass, mass to... chicken apocalypse thing, like that's a different. Like if if we were actually watching that happen, uh, and you know this being the end product, but um, I'm not quite there yet. Like I'm not. I'm not. I'm not quite ready to denounce you know, that, that particular thing. Or I just you know I like fast food. What can I say? I don't, yeah. I, I but mean, I mean, it's made of. It just. I guess. Is it just made of? What's it called? The cracking. Crack, the cracking? I, mean, I, I hope it's fake. I hope it's a hundred percent not real food. That's right. that's my hope when I eat it. You know, it's leftover chicken bits, right? Is that what they're saying? Yes, it's, it's the bits I think from the frying process. Exactly. Okay. I guess it's not that gross. It's more that like the visuals of it are gross. Well. It, it is gross if you, I mean, I'm sure if we had to look at things like, look, how do you make chicken tenders, chicken nuggets, that, that right. sort of thing. I mean, the, the basically they're, they're taking the, the animal and they're, they're sucking every last piece of right. flesh off of it in some right. But that's what native, isn't that fashion. a good thing? Like, don't, isn't that a Native American thing? Yes, yeah, you, you want to honor the animal right. by eating every last bit of it. So right? ultimately, KFC is really just honoring Native it's American spiritual. culture. It's a spiritual thing, and it teaches us a lot about <laughs> uh, responsible consumption. <laughs> They are a pioneer in that. That's right. I mean, this I, is this is our this is our way of connecting with nature. Yes. Right? You know what? I feel really remiss because Matt, I suggested that it isn't, isn't that terrible. And it's not. You don't consider it, it isn't that terrible. And I want our viewers and listeners to have access to that because that's part of what we promised them. So, wanted to add that John Wayne Bobbitt, who infamously. Oh come on. Okay, go what? ahead. What, All do right. you have that? No, no, I, just just go ahead, yeah, yeah. Do you have another, isn't that terrible? I just, you know, I'm, I, how many severed penis stories are we going to have? In this well, story? look, you're going to feel bad now because unfortunately okay. it doesn't stop at the penis. This is not just a penis. You know, don't pigeonhole me, don't penishole me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't, KFC, don't KFC chicken, don't chickenhole me. 
Uh, All right. What happened with John Wayne Bobbitt? John Wayne Bobbitt, who, and I'm reading it, Oxygen uh, News. Um, John Wayne Bobbitt, who infamously had his penis cut off, may need to have his foot amputated, which is really terrible. Diabetes or? No. uh, John Bobbitt is reportedly in Las Vegas hospital where doctors are considering amputating an infected left foot. And he, of course, rose to fame after having his penis cut off by his wife, Lorena Bobbitt. Um, he said that uh, he told TMZ that the possible amputation stems from a 2013 injury when he was working in construction. He said he stepped on a nail, which punctured a toe on his left foot. The incident triggered an infection that extended to the bone of his left foot. Antibiotics apparently never healed that infection. And he's currently in Las Vegas hospital where he says doctors are debating whether to amputate the foot. He, I just want to give a full, his full bio includes starring in two pornographic films uh john wayne bobbitt uncut is one of them and the other one is frank and penis frank so <laughs> and uh because i just feel like i haven't given a good enough isn't that terrible or penis story but I, I can count this for my isn't that weird okay Ready? all right good let's okay. resource so now, we're now to, isn't, yeah, that weird? isn't that weird yeah teen hospitalized after receiving snake bite to penis while on toilet that's another story. Oh, I just toilet. feel like was we the didn't... snake in the toilet? Uh, yeah, a Thai teen lived out every man's worst nightmare after snake suck its sunk its fangs into his penis while he was on the john. <laughs> I looked down and saw there was a snake hanging in the toilet. <laughs> Sirahap Masukarat, eighteen, told Viral Press his near serpent circumcision. That's pretty good. This is New York Post. See, New York Post knows how to do it. Yeah, uh, after the reptile allegedly infiltrated what kind of the plumbing. A snake. What kind of snake? That's an important well, detail. See. He recalls watching smartphone videos on the toilet when all of a sudden he felt a searing pain in his nether region. Uh, he looked down to discover a nightmarish sight, a four-foot python with its jaws clamped around the tip of his penis. A python? At that, yeah, at that point, the horrified boy stood up with snake still attached and slammed the door on the reptile, causing it to release its grip. He then howled in terror and rushed out of the now blood-spattered bathroom with his pants around his ankles, whereupon the serpent slinked back into the toilet bowl. There's video, actually, of the snake in the toilet, and you just see some blood on the toilet. Ah! Oh! Jeez. Look at him. He's, Awful. Is he dead? So, no, he's not even. So this is just a python chilling in a toilet bowl. A guy is taking it out with gloves on. I'm assuming it's not the victim. And you see some blood on the toilet bowl. Anyway, I guess that's a good <laughs> lesson for why you should not be watching videos on the toilet seat. All right. Well, so now we've got so we've got that out of the way. We, uh, you know, we, we know that things can jump out of the toilet and, and yeah. bite your penis. So that's that's good. Well, let's talk about world events. What do you think? Yeah. Donald Trump got sick this week. What's the most interesting thing about this? All right. So I think watching him take off the mask personally was incredibly scary. But right. Well, you want okay. to set it up first. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So Donald Trump got sick and there were there were 19 different storylines about what he might have done wrong about this. And we can get into the you know, all the things that happen in leading up to this diagnosis, because he's basically been flipping off fate for the entire year. For a guy who publicly once denounced 
handshakes as being too likely to to conduct the flu. I think people probably don't remember this. He told Playboy in 2004 that businessmen are, are he essentially applied that businessmen are insecure and are in favor of the firm handshake uh, because they think it conveys something. And he says, I'm in favor of no handshake. Uh, and he tells a story about how somebody who had the flu gave him a handshake and he was so mad. He told that story over and over again. For that guy to spend the entire year basically going around maskless and talking about how COVID isn't a thing and you know, we can look at all the, Dan, if you can show the picture, CNN, they have a, a gallery of pictures from a, an event that involved the Rose Garden and the White House Diplomatic Room. And this is after we've already dispatched Herman Cain to the afterlife, remember, for the sake of a campaign ad. So here they are. There's a whole bunch of people with no masks on in the Amy, Amy uh, Harry Cohenhead's reception Oval Office. The scenes get progressively bigger. Here's the White House Diplomatic Room, which is like this uh, sort of oval-shaped uh, room. And there's Chris Christie. And, the, and the, the, these scenes are full of people who subsequently came down with, with the right. disease. And you see them standing, I mean, face to face, not face to face, at all. just like no breathing masks. each yeah. other's in, in, in each other's faces. Right. And so that here he is with Maureen Scalia. The, the, the New York Times did a thing where they basically put red dots over everybody who later came down with the disease with these with these photos. And it's it's just amazing. Right. So there's that. Then there's the fact that they announced that he probably that he had he was something like 72 hours into his diagnosis. Uh, they announced that about 36 hours after the news came out, which meant that he had he had known about it significantly beforehand. And it raised the whole question of whether he knew about it when uh, before the debate. And uh, so there's that whole irresponsibility angle. You know, all of it is is just preposterous. And, and you, you add to the to this, the stuff that he's been saying about the disease over and over again. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, he was telling people uh, this disease doesn't really affect people. It's uh, very, very few people who um, who aren't old uh, right. get the Ma disease. Yeah, which was a major missed opportunity. I don't remember. If we, I don't think we mentioned this, but major missed opportunity for Biden was pushing back on that. Well, right. He, sh he should have. But I, I think the the polls are already showing that that elderly voters Right, are um, supporting Biden at, at numbers that haven't been that high since um, oh, uh, Gore. Gore. Okay, Gore was but, the last Dem to get senior vote. Yeah, but this is important because this Trump Trump won uh, among elderly people by a fairly significant right. margin in 2016. So um, if he loses there, that's you know that's going to be very very. It makes the road almost impossible for him, right? Um, absent some kind of other turnout situation. So there's all of this stuff going in. He says all these crazy things. Uh, and we can get into the, the, the response in a second, but he gets the disease, he goes to Walter Reed, and of course, he's better in a few days, apparently, uh, and comes out. And then there's stage two of, of the craziness where, where he turns the whole thing into like a WWE spectacle. Actually, there's, there's an amazing video that yeah, the we World Socialist web, website put out, which uh, com comparing the triumph of the will to the video the Trump campaign put out about Trump's return to the White House. And Dan, if we could look at that. Basically, you're seeing 
scene-to-scene uh, -scene likenesses where everything from the close-ups of the landing gear um, to the, the walkout from the, heli from the Marine One helicopter to the scene of Trump standing on the balcony, which, you know, I thought, when I first saw it, I thought Julius Caesar, but actually it does definitely has yeah. a... Oh, I, I thought Mussolini. More right, than, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was incredible. It was also classic Trump, the degree, the degree to which his fans went completely bananas when, you know, Trump beat COVID uh, ostensibly. Yeah. And actually, Dan, if we could look at the video that uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler put up. This is amazing. Ba yeah. Basically, what they did is they took Trump's WrestleMania appearance and uh, and they superimposed a, a COVID uh, virus uh, picture on the, I guess, on the head of Vince McMahon, I think is who it's supposed to be. I mean, that's based on a real video of Donald Trump at a WWE match, WrestleMania. Right? But that was made, uh, remade famous another, at another point when they put CNN over the face of that guy. Oh, that's right. Yes. Right? So he was uh -huh. tackling and beating CNN and that freaked out people. Yeah. So the, the conservative media was full of this stuff. They, the Trump himself ended up doing some kind of video that in, where they superimposed Trump's head on the, on the head of a NFL wide receiver dancing into the end zone. Uh, the NFL made them take it down, which is, which wow. is hilarious. It was classic. Trumpian theater, right? He does something stupid, gets himself in trouble, and somehow turns the news around uh, and, and turns it into a photo opportunity of incredible tastelessness, right? Oh, uh, I mean, absolutely disgusting, yeah. So so that happens. But then the whole thing is compounded by this completely nuts response that we were, we talked about previously that went way over the top. From the from the people who were watching the whole thing, and to me, the the craziest moment in all of this was when Trump. So, so Trump gets up on the uh, on his balcony and he's doing this, you know, Caesarian, Hitlerian, you know, Mussolinian address to the people, and he's kind of ceremonially takes off his mask. Yeah. As they're showing it, CNN had like this sp spasmodic freakout. And we, I apologize for having to, for using a link to Newsbusters, which is a site oh. that people don't like. Yeah. But there's no, nobody else has this has this link up. This morning, the fact is, denial won't help you. Makeup won't help you. And based on what we've just heard and seen, the president won't help you. Now, masks will help you. But the president made a grand theatrical gesture of whipping his off at his Sunset Boulevard return to the White House. A reckless return to the White House for President Trump. While likely contagious, Trump still removing his mask on the White House balcony to pose for photos in his highly produced homecoming before going inside. The only thing I heard was one of the tweets saying that, you know, don't be so concerned about all this, essentially. There's a lot to be concerned about. 210,000 people have died. The president, in that Sunset Boulevard gesture, whipped his mask off in front of the American people on the nightly news last night. So, as a doctor whose job it is, you know, take it off. Please, don't even put it on the screen. Please take it off. Because that's going to kill people. Admittedly, the, the, they had showed it, the, the scene three times by, by then, just in that one little right. clip of Trump taking off the mask. But this notion of 
let's not even show the video because it's going to kill people. Like they're imbuing him with, you know, hypnotic vampiric powers to, to kill people with his very image. I, I, I don't know. It, well, it, it was, it was I, over I, the top. But there's something very burlesque about the way he does it. He's stripping off his pasties, basically. Yeah, but yeah. his face pasties. Yeah, pasties. <laughs> his pasties. His, his <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just thought he looked so ridiculous. And I'm going to push back. I got to push back with on, on this a little bit because I do think it's irresponsible. For, I'm not saying don't show it, but I think it's incredibly irresponsible because to the extent that Trump has any, it's not hypnotic power, but like, People who like Trump like Trump. And I think that, like, you know, there are going to be some people. It's going to have a ripple effect. Well, he's he's on a balcony, those, like, 50 feet from anybody. So yeah, taking off a mask. The, I, yeah, I, but, like, it's – I definitely think it's, like, look, given how powerful he is and how, how imagery does affect people, obviously, on some level, like, it's going to cause – there's going to be something that happens. If you want to argue that, that's fine. But then don't show it four times and then then yeah, then sure. Shriek, that's the thing shriek, that is that's shriek, ridiculous. Oh, it's going yeah. to kill people because then now you're now you're having it both ways. The the other stuff that Trump has been doing, the 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 rally that that worth that's maskless, the all these people in a you know in a hall that are sitting next to each other, um, those things are, are are worse. Yeah, I just think it's his defi the defiance of taking off the mask. He's doubling down on that. Sure. Yeah. He's literally not infecting people at that moment. I just think that given his treat, I mean, I, I do think it's dangerous because he's doubling down on who cares about masks and at the same time making the staff sick around him and not just the staff that chooses to work in this evil man's like uh, administration, but like regular workers who right. have to clean. I mean, that's the kill. Like, that's the thing that I find so disgusting is that um, you're like your janitor, your custodian, housekeeper, all these things, and you have to be like a vic potential victim of this guy's optics. It's just disgusting. And right, and, yeah, right. And and, and look, and he, he he we have there was a video of him telling a reporter take the mask off, and the guy the guy wouldn't right. do it. There's apparently he was he's been doing that at meetings. I mean, it would have been literally kind of the perfect, correct ending to the Trump saga to have like this Othello style pile of gasping, wheezing bodies under under a big sign that says something like so much winning or whatever it was. Like that that would have made sense as the but it, it's not gonna be that. What's what's then gonna and going to end up happening is the Trump people are gonna spin this as, you know, the disease isn't that big a deal and he beat it. I get that he's uh, totally irresponsible and yeah. all that stuff is horrible. But I, I I just also think the response was was nuts on the other side. I mean, the the White House Correspondents Association, when Trump left Walter Reed Hospital, they issued this incredibly sanctimonious press release about how about how Trump basically left without their permission. So here's a statement from the White House Correspondents Association. It is outrageous for the, the for the president to have left the hospital even briefly amid a health crisis without a protective pool present to ensure that the American people know where their president is and how he is doing. A protective pool. So what words, is that? So they're basically saying the president shouldn't go anywhere without his pool of reporters who are basically there to 
beat the shit out of him, which is fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But wait, but what does that even mean? A protective pool? I mean, they mean what they say in the tweet, which is that you shouldn't be able to be going out even briefly without us because the American people need to know where you are at all times. Which right? I mean, I think you shouldn't be going out at all, even briefly. Full stop is an okay set, uh, statement to make. I will say that I think people have underestimated how he will. I think, and I'm pretty sure he's going to lose the election. I don't know, but I think people are underestimating how much he. And I said this from the beginning. A lot of people did, but he was going to exploit this to show. But it, that he's not. He, he he thinks he's exploiting this. He's not exploiting this. this is it, not, it, it's it, not. It's not effective. It's, it's even among doesn't his supporters. work. Like this is this is what has always driven me crazy about the way we cover Trump. Trump, the the reason he won, the reasons he won are are not terribly complicated. They're not hard to figure out. He took a population that was disaffected for a thousand yeah. different reasons, promised every one of them right. whatever they wanted, including the people who had you know who were racist and xenophobic. He gets elected, but basically he's he's a he's a small time con artist who's just not all that smart, right? And so over time. He does stuff that is uh, is you know self harming and and politically stupid, um, and he reveals himself constantly, and this, and that ultimately is what's going to lose him the election, and not the mountains of propaganda about him being a you know a literal fascist dictator or a Russian spy or any of these other things. People can see that the guy just doesn't really know what he's doing, and it's it's stuff like this where people are just like, you know, what a third grader knows not to do that kind of thing, right? That 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 that's that's what's going to lose it for him. I guess the question is whether or not that peels away enough support from his supporters and whether or not it uh motivates the unmotivated base to vote for him. I, I think he does lose him some 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 support so, yeah. because there's there's a, like a significant seniors, number right? of people. Remember if you go back to to 2016, like 19% of the voters disliked both candidates. And Trump did really well with right. those voters. He won them by almost a two to one margin. So I would have to think that the number of people who are ambivalent about both candidates is still going to be pretty huge. Yeah. yeah. And probably even bigger this time around. Right. So it's really a question of how badly are you going to uh, right. offend and annoy? Right. that group of people i mean his fans are his fans right that he's yeah. probably got you know 30 something percent of the population pretty much locked up and there's another percent of the population that just probably hates the democrats so much right. that they're gonna yeah. lean that way anyway yeah and but, those people will get out physically to vote more than the other people that's the other thing except a lot of them are sick or dead this time you know yeah, uh, I guess, yeah. you know what i mean or they don't have an easy way to vote this was a colossally stupid move by Trump. Although, again, I hate to go back to this, but at this time of the election last year, I think everybody in the world would have bet every yeah. last dollar that they had that he would have lost because of the Access Hollywood thing. And, you know, there's still time for a thousand cycles of the of the news between yeah. now and then. 
So yeah. we have a we have a good guest today. We're going to talk to David Sirota, who yeah. of course worked on the Sanders campaign and is an investigative reporter of uh, some standing. And we've, very prolific. Uh, known him for quite a long time. I, David, David and I can go back a long way. So we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including all this. It should be interesting. You know, he likes to. His, one of his claims to fame is that he's inspired a character on that show, The Goldbergs, like one right. of the Goldberg. But for me, what's much more impressive is that. Um, I, I saw him at, at, at an event, I guess it was last year, and I was really into the movie A Star is Born, and I was asking all the fun, <laughs> I wish you could have seen Matt's face right there. It was like the weird, he was like so, what would you call that, Dan? Like a flinch? A grimace? It was something in between, yeah. It was a, fl- it was a, like a, a flimace. A totally organic, Disgust. unprocessed reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I was really into that movie, the uh, the new one, the Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga one. Oh, I see. Okay. And I, yeah, <laughs> which makes it actually, if you saw that movie, you'd probably find it worse. But I was like asking all everyone if they'd seen it, which was funny because I was in it. It was a it was a room full of really smart political people, and that was my quest. And he mm-hmm. turned to me and he was like, "No, but I played Little Lead with Bradley Cooper." Oh, that's right. Yes, of course. Well, we can ask him about that. Yeah, we can. I even got the photo. I got the photo. We can pop in. Nice. Excellent. Um, All right. Well, well, let's let's get to that conversation and uh, we'll talk to you. Crystal. Okay. Is that a Back to the Future t-shirt? Yes, this is a Back to the Future t-shirt. Okay. So you wrote a book about 80s movies, right? Yes, I did. I did. I wrote a book about how 1980s pop culture... uh, basically informs uh, essentially everything that we deal with today. That in other words, that the pop culture of the 1980s, like you, you thought you were watching the A-Team, but the A-Team was, you know, it was just a TV show, but the A-Team was teaching you that basically uh, government couldn't do anything except chase down and try to imprison the people who were trying to, uh, to, to help the average person. Uh, you know, the Knight Rider taught you that um, you can't rely on, um, you know, basically any governmental institution to help you. You need to find Michael Knight and a, uh, a talking car to, to help Naturally. you with your problems. So, Wait, yeah. I didn't know you wrote this book. It's literally called Back to Our Future. How did yes. 1980s explain the world we live in now, our culture, our politics, or everything? When did you write this? This book so I wrote awesome. this back in 2011. Uh, yeah, it came out in 2011. And now we have like the ultimate 80s president like Donald Trump. Can you write a new, I mean, you got to write an updated intro and re-release it. I, to- I totally should. I totally should. And Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump is really epically 80s. So. He's Biff. He's Biff. Yeah, he is. That's right. The character from Back to the Future. Yeah. 100%. So wait, what was, what was, I can't remember, what was the riff about Back to the Future, if I remember really? Oh, about, about the, well, there's, there's a couple things that Back to the Future, the actual movie teaches us. I mean, uh-huh. the first page of the book uh, literally, the inscription of the book is the the quote from Marty McFly, who's who asks Doc, "Wait," and I'm paraphrasing here, but wait, what happens to us in the future? Do we become assholes or something? <laughs> and <laughs> that's like the first page of the book. <laughs> uh, and and of course, the the one trope that comes through in Back to the Future that I became really obsessed with was how the '80s taught us to glorify the 1950s. 
that there was this big thing in the 80s where it was like, we just have to go back to the 50s because everything was okay in, right. in the 1950s, which of course in the 1950s, the United States was basically an apartheid state. Uh, things really weren't that okay in, in the 1950s. But that actually with the Tea Party folks, if you remember that this, and, and really a lot of Republican politics were, you know, make America great again, it's still kind of tapping into that thing that that was a big pop culture meme in the 80s, certainly in Back to the Future, that we just have to get back to the earlier, simpler right. time of well, the 1950s. I mean, it was really explicit with Trump at the at the convention in 2016 where his opening speaker, Scott Baio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Literally, we want to go back to happy days. Yeah, exactly. Right? Which, exactly. which is exactly what you're talking about, where happy days is presenting this... Fun, st- funny thing stylized. about happy days, by the way, mm-hmm. very funny thing. I, 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 not until like probably when I was an adult did I realize that happy days wasn't actually made, made then. In the 50s. That's really yeah, funny. yeah, I was yeah. confused. I thought it was made <laughs> right. in the 50s, like not- Greece, like the movie Greece, right? Exactly, John Travolta. That was exactly. not made in the, yeah. I mean, it was really kind of weird about it is imagine there was all this pop culture. And I don't think there is that much of it now, but like there was all this 80s pop culture about how awesome the 50s supposedly was, you know, uh, Happy Days and Back to the Future. Is there a lot of pop? That that was only like 30 years beforehand. So there's not really like a ton of pop culture right now about how awesome the 1990s was there. Like it's kind of a weird thing. The the culture isn't that isn't so graphically different from the '90s, like right, the, right, maybe, right. maybe, and also I, I think a lot of the thing also was that there were so many boomers who were making movies too, oh, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Grew, yeah. That's grew a good up point. in that period, right? And so they that's were completely romanticizing their childhoods and everything. Yeah, that's a good. But point. also, also there were like big changes, right? Like the '60s, '70s yes. were very different. Like the 50s and the 80s were these more conservative times and there were these like, you know, revolutionary in some ways. I mean, if you really want to get deep about it, just the the one thing I will say is is one of the most reactionary movies that that exists from the 80s that I didn't realize was reactionary until I kind of wrote the book and studied it a little bit. The movie The Big Chill, the, the amount of hatred that it expresses for the 1960s is like, I mean, it's like really angry. Like it's really, really angry at the 1960s. That's like the boomers triumph of the will. Yeah, I mean, like there's that scene where they're sitting around the table and they're like, oh yeah, you remember when you protested and you were you were defending, you know, the Black Panthers, whatever. And they're, they're all like, oh my God, we were such idiots. Disgusted what, what kind of morons yeah. were we to, to do that? And you're like, wow, you're really mad at the 1960s. Wow. Well, that, was, well, that was also because the the we were heading into that whole period where uh, boomers were making the decision to like actively sell out. Totally. Right. Totally. So the they, yeah, like, okay, now it's time to like throw all that stuff off and make tons of money. Right. right. And that, and that scene was like, we were right to sell out. Like it's, it's right. cool that we've sold out and like, I'm trying to make myself feel better now. Granted, I guess you could argue maybe the filmmakers were sort of making it to poke fun at that. But like, if you just watch it and you're not thinking too hard about it, you're like, wow, they're like, just saying like, we were, we shouldn't have done what we did in college or we were idiots in college and now it's okay to just completely sell out. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. And and the the, the the sort of logical next step of that was Forrest Gump, where where oh. now we're looking back and basically if you were involved in 60s protests, you have to die of AIDS or you <laughs> exactly. have to lose a, lose right. a limb or something the, the like that. End. The logical end. <laughs> right. If you did any activism in the 60s, like, sorry, you're, you're, you're just like dead. Right. Well, yeah. also, they, I mean, when I saw uh, Forrest Gump, I saw in the theaters and I was a counselor or a CIT at summer camp at the time. And I thought it was great. It was fun. 
And then I went back to like civilization, you know, to the city. And I remember people saying that it was going to be nominated for an Academy Award. I was like, yeah, right. No way. And in that context, it was actually very scary. Like it was fine when it was this cute little quirky movie, but when it was supposed to be like an epic historical. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it, it robbed, I think, the greatest movie of all time from an Academy Award. I think that was, was the same. I think it was Pulp Fiction. Oh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, no, I think, I think I'm pretty sure. I, mean, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it robbed Pulp Fiction of, of an Academy Award. And it won. Wow. It actually won, right? I don't yeah, remember yeah, if it yes. won. Yeah, yeah, which was, remember, it was like, it was like, look how sexist the Black Panthers were. That was like their their cameo. The, ca- right. the cameo of the Black Panthers was him like hitting a white woman. Was a Black yep. Panther hitting a white woman? And but that I mean, was our. I mean, also just the the whole like, well, here's our take on American history. Shit happens, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I mean yeah. that was that was the whole message, and you know, deal deal with it, which was pretty. Could that pretty what, funny. would that pass? Like, the, uh, what would he be called? Like mentally dis. I'm not even being. Like would that that that's well so this came this came up in Tropic Thunder right that's right that's right yes yes, yes. So, I mean, the, uh, there's, there's, the simple simple Jack character yes yeah. right yeah yes. exactly yeah. like there, it's really not easy you have to be somewhere in between a defined medical condition and- I saw I, I think there was a meme that went around that anybody in a movie who buttons the top button of a, <laughs> a collared shirt. <laughs> Hollywood signaling to you that they're like not all there. Wow. Wait, you mean buttons it and the whole thing from Correct. down. But if, if, if you a button man, it man, and open it, then that's like an LA right. that's a different. If a man is down. wearing a collared shirt in buttoned a Hollywood movie and it's buttoned all the way to the top, Hollywood is trying to signal to you that there's something wrong with the character. Right. Well, what, really wasn't good. that in Falling Falling Down did that too, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, 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 actually, well, he was wearing a tie, but he, he was wearing the tie with the short, short sleeve. Right, no, that's yes. another. Story. That's yeah. the other. That's yeah. another yeah. diagnosis, another yeah, yeah, symptom, yeah. another symptom of something else, yeah. I think Rain Man, Rain Man wore the, the, the top button buttoned at one point. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a very, it's yeah. like uh, somebody in Hollywood was like, we can't, you know, we, like there needs to be a politically correct way to say somebody's got problems. <laughs> yeah, so the top button is like how we're gonna do it. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's like a signifier, right? Yeah, totally. The other great thing was the '80s, uh, you know, sort of version of uh, feminism with Fatal Attraction, where uh, basically. Um, yeah, all the all that thing about being liberated and you know is is, is great, but here here's what the end game is, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, have, I mean, I'm serious. Like, boiling, and you know, it's just the '80s is the, all the, so much of the pop culture was working out so much dark stuff from the 1960s. I mean, again, I like and 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 to be to, to actually be serious about it for a second, like a lot of kids were watching that and and not and and adults and not thinking that they're getting political messages, right? Yeah. But, but that's when the filter is kind of is, is down and that's when the messages and I'm not saying there was like some conspiracy theory among the creators, but it's like that's like deep programming kind of stuff. I mean, the A team, again, to go back to that, it's like the entire premise of the show is that these guys were sent in by the government to do a job in Vietnam. The government basically framed them for a crime. 
They promptly broke out of a, of a prison because the government can't even imprison people, apparently. Uh, that, that's the, the premise. And then they're running around helping people. And the villain is the government trying to stop them from helping people to throw them back in jail. I mean, think about how anti-government that really is. I mean, that's like really seriously anti-government. Yeah. Great show, though. It is a great show. I love it. <laughs> also, Just Don't yeah. put B.A. Baracus on a plane. Just right. don't try right. that. You had a lot of those movies that were like private paramilitary groups uh, in, in the 80s. The other great one I love was Predator. When when they get to the village, and I always thought this was this was a great thing to teach the youth. Uh, when you get to the village and you ask the question about what uh, who's been here or whether you've seen a monster and the person can't answer because they speak Spanish, all you got to do is shake them a little harder <laughs> and they immediately start speaking English. Of course. Uh, yeah, but that's everyone knows that. That's how you. How, how <laughs> there was an interview with Michael Douglas where he said something to the effect of about Wall Street that he, after the movie came out, he was kind of horrified at how many people would come up to him and say that they loved Gordon Gecko yeah. and didn't oh. see Gordon Gecko yeah, as a like, villain. And he was like, like "Dude, born you, in the USA." Yeah, it was like, "Dude, you didn't get like right. Gordon Gecko is not not so the hero." Like, well, not, no, the, yeah. That came up with for me uh, constantly with the after the 2008 thing with that a whole generation of people who went to Wall Street didn't get that uh, that he was supposed to be a villain and th that whole like you know greed works uh, right. I mean th th there's a whole series of those uh, sort of hedge fund dudes and now we're and now we're we're living in you know. In, oh, in what course. that pop culture helped, right? I actually took like, a class at Wesleyan called Narrative and Ideology with this brilliant professor, Kachik Talolian, who is super smart. And I wrote, and it was all about movies and ideology. And I think I wrote my, uh, my final paper on Pretty Woman. But we watched in that class, we watched like Secret of My Success. And this is a guy, it's interesting because this is the same professor who taught like Freud and you know, Foucault and uh, Althusser, but also this class, because, you know. I'll tell you what, the creepiest part of, the, of, of, of all this stuff that I learned when I reported that book was how um, deeply involved the Pentagon is in directly oh, in making, like in making films. And, right. I mean, I don't think people really, I, like, I didn't even get, like, I knew, you know, oh, they, they, they're sort of involved. No, I mean, they're like literally line editing scripts. Like, th that is not an exaggeration. That is what the Pentagon will tell you that they, that they do, that essentially, if you want access to military hardware to for for your movie which is a huge essentially a subsidy because otherwise you have to recreate it and spend a lot of money if you want access like you know I'm, i need a you know i need a uh, uh, this this scene on the on the deck of an aircraft carrier the military was like great we can totally do that for you let me see your script so we can edit it, <laughs> line edit it to make sure it says exactly what we want it to say. By the way, interesting, in, interesting side story. Kevin Costner, um, uh, if I'm remembering this story correctly, they were making um, uh, 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 the uh, 13 Days, the movie about the, yeah. uh, the Cuban Missile Cuban Crisis. Cuban Missile Crisis, right. yeah. So they need these pictures. They want these pictures of the of of you know I think it was boats or something with the embargo. Like they wanted yeah. like sort of a lot wide shots of of destroyers in the ocean and the military was like, great, let, let me see your script. Cool. And, and they were like, listen, your script's fine. It's 13 days. But this interaction between, I think it was Curtis LeMay and, and I think, and Robert Kennedy, th this makes the military look too, you know, belligerent. I think Curtis LeMay was saying we, we, we should nuke Cuba or something. And 
And the filmmakers were like, yeah, dude, that's like literally the point. from a transcript. It's historical record. Yeah. That's like not, we didn't improvise Interpretation. Yeah. And, and the Pentagon was still like, yeah, that's fine. But no, you're not, you're not making the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think Costner, like himself, something along the lines of like, he put up his own money because he was like, screw you, I'm making this movie the way we want to make it. And so kudos to him if I've, if I've got, it's something like that. But the wow. point is, is like, can you imagine the Pentagon literally said to the filmmakers, we're not going to help you or allow you essentially to make th this movie or cooperate with you to make this movie because you're directly quoting of course the, the tapes from the white house that, of history that actually happened right 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 well we can't have that it's not revisionist enough right yeah. exactly that gives a whole new meaning to a revised script. Yes, I mean it's really the how heavy-handed the military is. And of course, the guy who ran the office in the in at the Pentagon, a guy named Phil Strube, he would he he was open about this because he that's him say, saying, "Look at me, I'm doing my job." He was saying to his higher-ups, "Yeah, of course we line edit scripts. Like uh, that's what I'm hired. That's what the mil the the Pentagon film office is is exists to do." Right. Right. Well, they did a good job. You know, they they definitely did. They yeah. definitely did. And 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 by the way, there was there was a, there was one director who said that he was told. I think he was making Hunt for Red October. He was saying that the studio the, that the value of the Pentagon cooperating with you, the the monetary value of them saying, yeah, you can use our planes and do all this stuff, is so great that studios started saying, not surprisingly, either you get the Pentagon's approval to make your movie, or the movie is not going to be made. Right. Like that's so then you get, of course, shocker, you get like for every one mildly anti-war movie you get, you get like 500 movies glorifying, you know, essentially war making in the military, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and the, wow. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that in the 80s, there were a thousand movies that had, you know, military hardware in them. But the, the generation before that, like basically it's stripes and nothing else was like the, you know, the right. I mean, yeah. where, well, that's where the, the only military hardware was like an RV. You so, know? so that's the thing. Yeah. So and coming into the 80s, the public's faith in the military right. after the Vietnam War was at an, an all time low. And the public's faith essentially after the 80s, after all of this pop culture, and it's not only pop culture, but like after all of the sort of uh, Republican and political saber rattling, plus the pop culture, plus, you know, it, it is now where it is now, which is to say that it's extremely hard to ever question the military because the military is not just held in, 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 in good standing in the public's mind, but it's like, it's, it's held in a standing where it's, it's hard to even raise basic respectful questions about military policy, you know, government, sp Pentagon spending and the like. So that pop culture and that, aggressive use of the film office uh, for you know tv movies etc cetera, etc cetera. that that was part of the pentagon's deliberate plan to kind of resuscitate its image after the vietnam war and and by the way to to, to children as well the the show gi joe the cartoon i mean that is a show one thing that it it it, it created as a as a uh, as a sort of standard setter was there used to be a rule that said essentially that you cannot have a toy that that then creates a program that is a full like uh, it's not just a commercial but it's a full television show mm -hmm. gi joe the the entire show is a commercial for a mil for a, a military themed product 
Right. G.I. Joe, of course, is sending all sorts of messages about how, you know, important, uh, you know, Pentagon spending is the military, et cetera, et cetera. So this stuff was like trickling down to kids as well. And they they were all the way back then, even going to video game conventions, looking for kids to do be drone yes. pilots and stuff like that. But the, the the amazing thing about about that is you couple all that propaganda with the loss of confidence in all these other institutions, and you look at the Gallup polls about like which which institutions do you have does the public have confidence in? It's like the military is up here. Police are usually, surprisingly still somewhere like in the middle. And then like everybody else, Congress, the press, you know, doctors, they're all like leaps and bounds below. Yes. The, the military is, is is still far and away, right? I mean, if- Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, and by the way, your mention of video games. So I dug up a clip. It is one of the creepiest clips ever. It is from Ronald Reagan did a speech at Epcot Center. Okay. Mm. And he is literally talking about space invaders. And he's saying- something to the effect it's like it's like creepily specific he's like you watch these kids play space invaders and these are the screens that are going to be uh in cockpits these are the fighters <laughs> of the future these are these are like the future pot and it's like he's literally talking about like drone warfare it's like insane he's like talking about how atari is preparing kids for drone warfare i i forgot to look to see whether that speech was before or after the movie, The Last Starfighter. Cause that was like oh, almost right. literally what The Last Starfighter was sort of like, remember they recruited the kid who played the game really well. Like right. Reagan is like so on point and, and you know, he's glorifying it, but it's like, then you fast forward to the drone pilots who were essentially going into like a, you know, a, a video game center to, to, to run the drone bombs. I mean, it's, it's really creepy. And I did, also, I, I did a lot. There was a lot actually in the book about, um, about race. Oh yeah. Well, I, the other thing I was going to say, the Cosby show and yeah, I mean, the Cosby sorry. show, I mean, the Cosby show stuff is un like, Oh, like respectability politics. Well, he, well, he, he, here's the thing with the Cosby show. Originally the, the, the family was supposed to be, I think she was a limo driver and he was a carpenter. Wow. And they tested it and basically the audiences didn't like it as much. So they made them more upscale. And there was this idea that sort of a white audience didn't necessarily want to watch a working class African-American audience. And what's really interesting is that in the 1970s, there were a lot of shows with um, African-American working class characters. Right. right. Yeah. And so what happens is in the 80s with the advent of the Cosby show, there's there's more African Americans on TV and in movies in the 1980s, but there's almost no African Americans in movies and TV who are working class, like that, like. And there's unless even a they're genre being chased of, up by cops. Yes, or, right. Unless they're or doing, yes. adopted by rich white people. Yes, correct. Like as like, in the cases of Webster and yes. different strokes. I mean, which Webster. Is so weird. I mean, by the way, there's a storyline in Webster that's like. I, when you look back on it, it's like it's so horrifying. Do, do you remember the storyline with Ben Vereen? How they rescue the the, the White family rescues uh, uh, Emmanuel Lewis Webster from uh, a, a low income black uh, neighborhood. I think it was in Chicago. I can't remember, but but they re they they quote rescue him. Right. Okay. And he's doing that. And then his uncle, his like you know blood relative, comes back and is like, I want what like I'm going to take care of Webster now. And there was that whole thing where it was like, we can't let Webster go back to a low income 
African-American community with his uncle. Like that was a huge source of tension in that, in, right? And, and, you know, and there was a similar kind of thing going on in different strokes, right? right? It was like the white family yeah. is saving low-income yeah. black children from essentially the black community. I mean, it's like so racist. If only yeah. Janet Reno had been around then <laughs> to reunite them. It's just like Elian Gonzalez I, style. Yeah. Can you believe that stuff was on TV? Like, I mean, I can. <laughs> oh, like, yes. It's America, but like, it's, right. it's insanely offensive. I, I know. Also, what's, you know, speaking of, uh, I was talking with a friend about how, which shows and movies would ever pass like a woke test today. And like, first of all, Back to the Future, just the like, it's, he's like teaches a black guy how to play a, a solo, right? Isn't that right. The, the setup? Right. Right. He yeah. Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry's yeah. uh, brother or, or cousin yeah. or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. so he learned <laughs> how to totally. play music from well, Michael J. Fox. Wait. Just oh, to push back, the he yeah. learned it from Chuck Berry. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's it, that's oh, actually just sci-fi bullshit. Berry? No, well, that's I mean, true. It, that's true. Fair. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. I I, I, I also love. I mean, you look, if you look back at Family Ties now, yeah. it's yes. it's like the archetype for for basically 20 or 25 years worth of American culture where basically liberals played the straight man. I mean, I think that, that, that period is now over, uh, but, uh, it ended I mean, the with, politics the of family years. ties, it goes back to what we were talking about. It's like, it's essentially the entire show is making fun of the sixties. I mean, the whole, right. the whole but, right? but don't we like them? Like we like them, but they're losers. And their son's like a bad guy, but kind of successful. And, yeah, also and he the is the lovable way, one, right? He's the lovable but, character. But they, they, they used, and I actually talked to the guy for the book who, who, who made the show, who wrote the show. And he told me about audience tests. The show was supposed to be about the parents. And then the audience loved Alex. Alex oh my God. Okay, like, which is, right. like, but then the, here's the interesting thing. He, he said the guy who made it is a liberal. His name is, I think, Gary Goldman. Uh, he 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 said that they they had to like they could never take Alex all the way in his politics. Meaning, if you watch the, the the trick of the show is like he's a conservative douchebag, like for three but not quite. The show. He's lovable, and then he's like, oh, I actually, now I'm now I'm gonna like be a good guy, right? No, I'm gonna, like I mean, actually be a normal person. It's right? actually so, like, it's yeah. the same show as All in the Family, except except they t they take out the teeth of the conservative right, side right. of it. Yes. Right. Yes, so they're making right. fun of all the earnest, yes, earnest liberal stuff, which is really funny. I mean, like it anyway, is. Yeah. it's, it's, it's totally in bounds, but they just, they, they defanged everything that was, you know, horrifying about conservative politics. Right. Well, then, and and, and, the and put it in lo lovable Michael J. Fox. The problem is, is that then you can like, you can tell yourself like, I, I love Michael J. Fo you know, Alex P. Keaton and Republicanism and Reagan. And remember, I think he had a picture of Richard Nixon on his wall. And like, you can you can be like a Republican as long as like you and a good person, as long as you're not a Republican, like right. at the end of the day, like you, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it didn't take it all the way. And there's just a really funny scene that you remember where he's like talking to a, a classroom of like kindergarten kids and, and explains that taxes are a scary monster. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Or a young Grover Norquist. Okay, so we have an 80s character now basically running the country. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you just did a story about um, his OSHA policy, which is actually very Alex P. Keaton, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, like, walk, walk us through the what Trump has done in four years and how it has because uh, it, it, it is kind of a funny come it's not funny it, but it is a comeback to this whole thing about 
you know, this has been inculcated in us for for decades now. And, you know, it, right. So OSHA is this is this agency um, that is is supposed to uh, police workplace safety, like if your workplace is not safe or your or you, you feel like your employer is not um, following protocol to keep you safe, for instance, let's say in a deadly pandemic, uh, you can file a complaint with OSHA and OSHA is supposed to be the one that comes and takes a look and sends inspectors to see if your um, workplace is following basic protocols. Um, and it's Office what, of Safety and Health Organization. Uh, Occupational Safety and Health safety. Administration, right, yeah. OSHA, in the Department of Labor. Um, Trump comes in, uh, he essentially, um, through all sorts of budget shenanigans and the like, reduces the agency's resources to do random inspections uh, or, or complaint-based inspections, all inspections. Uh, and there's data out there to say that employers that fear a random inspection end up, not surprisingly, um, keeping, you know, following the, the law much better than, than companies that don't. Yeah. So like if you're, if you know that like an ocean inspector right. might show up at your workplace, you're going to probably keep things more clean than if you're like, if they're gotcha. never coming. Right. So Trump essentially makes it much, reduces the amount of inspections that happen in the pandemic. What we see is, a correlation, a direct correlation between workers filing COVID-related OSHA complaints. Essentially, workers being like, hey, OSHA, my workplace is not safe, and I'm really worried about this, and here are some specifics. A correlation between that and 17 days later, a spike in COVID deaths among workers. So essentially, there's a, if not a direct cause and effect, then certainly a correlation. Workers begging the Trump administration for help the agency that's been gutted by Trump that's supposed to police this kind of stuff, basically blowing off the complaints and big shocker, the end result is workers dying. And, and what's incredible about this graph is that you, is, you can see over the entire country that the OSHA complaints, the, the, the spike of OSHA complaints tracks, it's like a precursor to that, to that curve of COVID deaths. Like it's basically, it tracks almost perfectly of people saying my workplace is not safe to like a death rate, to a, a, a spike in death rates. This gets to the next question. And you did, you did a story about this for The Guardian with uh, Amy, Harry Coney. What's her name? Coney, Coney Barrett. Coney Barrett, yes. Uh, no, no, Harry Colon. Sorry. Harry Colon. Okay, we, 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 we argued about this previously, David. Uh, so... Um, so this this is where we bring the Democrats into it because uh, t time and again, they whenever there's an issue, they always talk about culture over stuff like that, right? And so we have a Supreme Court nomination and it's all they want to do is talk about, I feel like her religion and right. she's- A handmaid. What, what did you find out about her record in, in particular about issues like this where pretty much she's just dependably going to decide with employers probably on every kind of issue that would possibly come before the court. Right. So, so look, I think that the, the Democratic message on, on Barrett's nomination, they have tried to focus some of it on um, uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, woman's right to choose, uh, where, where Barrett is extremely, extremely conservative. You know, they, they've done, they've started to do some of their messaging, the Democrats, on 
uh, her threat to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which it is something of an economic issue, uh, you know, especially the pre-existing condition stuff. So I think that's, you know, I think that's that's different than what we've typically gotten in Supreme Court battles. I mean, the, the problem with Supreme Court battles over the last 15 years among, among them is that the debates have typically focused almost exclusively on social and cultural issues. Not that those are not important, but to the, to the exclusion of economic corporate power issues, which by the way, is what the court is mostly dealing with, right? I mean, if you pay attention to the news, you might think that the Supreme Court just only kind of arbitrates social and cultural issues, civil rights and stuff, again, important issues, but that it, it has nothing to do with like day-to-day -day, uh, economic uh, life in America, but that's actually the opposite. And so the reason why there's so much money behind Amy Barrett's nomination, I mean, you got a TV ad campaign, you got the US Chamber of Commerce, you got the, the Koch brothers, is because not, not because they they care that much about abortion policy or 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 religious issues. It's because those are the groups that care about wanting a Supreme Court, a six to three majority, that will be a corporate rubber stamp for the rest of our lives. And Amy Barrett's record is is one of a corporate rubber stamp. There was one analysis that found that in cases dealing with corporations and workers, seventy six percent of the cases that she ruled on in, in those kinds of cases, she ruled with essentially corporate interests. Weeks before her nomination, I mean, just a couple weeks before her nomination, she issued a ruling that essentially makes it much harder for gig economy workers to go to, to essentially force their employers to pay them overtime pay. Uh, she, you know, it was a technical issue. It was a technical ruling and the yeah, like. Saying, like, oh, they like standing Uber, Uber drivers and things yeah. like that. It was, yeah. it was Grubhub, actually. Yes. Grubhub, right. that, that, that the Grubhub drivers were saying, we are allowed to go to court and uh, for back pay, overtime pay with Grubhub. And Grubhub said, no, you signed a um, arbitration, an arbitration agreement. And the Grubhub workers said, yeah, but we as transportation workers under uh, the Federal Arbitration Act, we are, those arbitration agreements don't, are not valid. And she said, you know what? No, they are valid. Which, and the upshot of a decision like that is that workers, not just at Grubhub, but kind of all throughout the gig economy now, it's much harder for them to go into court to even have the the overtime claim litigated in court, like the, like closing the courthouse door so that the court doesn't even have to deal with it. I mean, if you're a company that employs thousands of gig workers, like that's exactly what you want. You don't even have to make your argument. You're just like you can't, you know, screw you. You can't even go to court. So that's why all this money is behind Amy Barrett's nomination. It, and it's so important to stress this, I think, and. David, you and I have talked about this before, but it's not like throwing people under the bus or throwing cultural issues under the bus or throwing civil rights under the bus to emphasize economic issues. Because, and, and this is such an interesting example of it, right? Because, you know, people like Sanders um, often get accused of, of being bad on identity politics, right? And we often, the response is like, if you care about racism, if you care about sexism, the people most impacted by, for instance, minimum wage um, laws are people of color and women, right? So all these universal programs actually disproportionately empower the most marginalized communities. But this is kind of another example of that, which is that if you care about cultural issues, you need to talk about economic issues because we know that unlike cultural issues, which are a wedge issue, 
economic issues go across the spectrum in terms of voters, not in terms of politicians. Yeah, but I isn't, mean, this is the isn't that the whole point, though, is that, I mean, I, I've always seen this, you know, the, the uh, emphasis on a lot, a lot of these cultural issues, especially yeah. recently, as being kind of an intentional tactic to make it possible for the Democratic Party to not address, you know, these broader economic issues. I mean, obviously, David, you know, you can speak to this after having been involved with the Sanders campaign, but, but isn't that kind of yeah, I mean, look, the, the look, modus operandi there? You have donors. Can I just finish up the one, one sure, thing? Though? Right, yes. Sorry, because th I just want to make it clear that like, if you cared about abortion, right? Because one of the things is that, as as you just referred to, Matt, and we'll get into more, right? It's like this is Dems like to distract from economic issues by kind of um, by like micro targeting and talking about the importance of identity, but just to distract from universal programs. But this is another way, and it's so concrete, right? Because if we know that talking about Amy Conan Barrett's Coney Barrett's economic stuff could actually reach people who otherwise like her for cultural reasons. What you're doing is you as Dems are neutering yourself, stopping yourself from blocking this person who's anti-choice. So you're not even protecting the social rights that you claim to care about because you're enabling her confirmation. So one thing, a couple of things I would say. One, it's it's not, we, we should be more specific. It's not just economic issues because I do think, you know, uh, availability of, of reproductive services for women, that is an economic issue. What we're really well, talking too, about right. here that's is corporate thing. power, right? right? Corporate power over workers. That's right. okay. Right. So right. the reason point. why the Democrats don't love to talk about those issues is to state the obvious is because they get lots of money from many of those same corporate interests. So what ends up happening in politics whether it's the Supreme Court or really in lots of other kind of places, is that the calculus is, okay, I've got corporate donors, I'm a Democrat, I've got corporate donors here. Uh, the Republicans are more extreme than I am on economic issues, but on issues of corporate power, I don't necessarily love to talk about them because I've got these corporate donors over here, these Wall Street donors who don't, who that might offend. So I'm going to talk about mostly cultural issues that don't affect corporate power questions, because that way I can do something that's morally right. Like, you know, Grant, you know, being for a woman's right to choose is morally right. You know, lots and lots of Democratic voters support those rights, rightfully so. And it doesn't offend my Wall Street donors. Now, the problem is, is as you say, what ends up happening is, is that then you potentially, though, can't make one of the most powerful cases against for instance, a Republican nominee to the Supreme Court. Because if you could make that argument, if you set aside your Wall Street donors and you know not caring about what they might say, you could go into that hearing and use the Supreme Court hearings to try to expose this nominee to the working class, uh, perhaps culturally conservative base of the Republican Party. You could say to that base, if you do it right, hey, listen, whether or not you like Amy Barrett on her cultural positions on religious issues and the like, she's actually worked to sell out workers over and over and over again. In other words, you can try to expose a Republican nominee as a betrayal, an economic betrayal of that working class. But you can't do that if the way you're deciding how to make a criticism factors in not offending large corporate donors. Right, but the, all, so... 
getting to your to your both of your points though, uh, if Katie, you're worried that they're that they're uh, robbing themselves of an argument that they want to make, they 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 could make um, against Coney Barrett, but really when it gets down to it, the question is, are they actually trying to win? Or are they trying to preserve the business model of what their what their political operation is? And if they're trying to do the latter, then then it makes perfect sense, right? right. No, I think uh, it does. I, I just to clarify, and then David obviously respond. But I, I'm agreeing with you. That's what's so. Then that is the thesis of Thomas Frank's, you know, listen, liberal. It's that they don't actually want to do these things that they pretend they'd love to do. And I guess my thing is why I'm bringing that up is because. So many people who say, "Oh, you're you're talk don't talk about," I mean, and they don't they they don't say don't talk about corporate power. They just say economics, like I did. But um, and you made a really important distinction there, David. But all these people who like to pretend that you know that that we're a bunch of um, what is it, class reductionists, and that they're the ones who are going to talk about um, uh, cultural issues. The irony, of course, is that by talking about just cultural issues, they are enabling, they're empowering. Re culturally conservative nominees. And that goes both for the, the people in like, you know, vo voters or libs in general or neo-libs or whatever you want to call them. And of course the politicians like, you know, Hillary, my favorite line of Hillary Clinton is breaking up the banks gonna, gonna oh end racism. Oh no. And like, that is, well, you know what, that Hillary brilliant. Clinton, thought, if you yeah. talked about breaking up the banks more, you could probably like stop a person who is anti-choice from going to the Supreme Court. You know, and, and I know she's OK with that. That's the whole point. Well, I, look, I, I, I don't know. It, it's hard to know legislator by legislator whether, you know, they actually want like, I mean, I'm sure there there are some Democratic senators on the, the right wing of the Democratic Party who would say, yeah, I looked at Amy Coney Barrett's record on on corporate power and I actually like her record on corporate. power. I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure there are some of them. I, I think there are others who were who who may not like it, but are worried about their uh, the, the party's donors. But I think ultimately, yes, you, you're right. I mean, politics then becomes narrowed to arguments over cultural and social issues uh, where we to the point where we're not actually talking about the corporate power issues that define day-to-day -day economic life uh, in America. And and look, if you look at this election to, to zoom out a little bit, I mean, just look on healthcare. I mean, the amazing thing about the the debate on healthcare, which which says this to to you know perfectly exemplifies this, is that the debate now the national debate on healthcare. If you're a health insurance CEO, you're like, this is awesome, right? Like, the entire debate on healthcare now is like. The Republicans want to get rid of the entire ACA and pre-existing conditions, right? To make me an, a, an insurance CEO, I can make even more money in that situation. Or the Democrats who are just saying, preserve the ACA, uh, preserve uh, uh, pre-existing conditions, preserve the subsidies for private insurance. Uh, let's not talk about actually reducing the power of the insurance industry as a middleman between Americans and medical providers, right? So the point is that they've ended up narrowing the entire debate on healthcare yeah. to two options that the health insurance companies are perfectly fine with. And then you, you take that out to like every other issue and you realize that the, the debate has been completely narrowed. And part of the narrowing of the debate is to say that the big conflagrations in politics will be about cultural and social issues. They won't really be about issues of corporate power, those issues that are actually right. defining and sculpting day-to-day -day economic life in America. And in the case of the Supreme Court, what you're doing is you're getting a person on the Supreme Court who is bad on cultural issues. That's like the that's the big. Yes. 
Fuck you so, to everyone who cares about those things. Sorry. David, what do you think about uh, Biden suddenly uh, speaking openly about how he's the guy who beat the socialists while he's got Bernie camp- campaigning for him? Risking I his mean, life campaigning for him, right? Because we're in the COVID era. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, first of all, I'm not surprised. Right. Uh, you know, Joe Biden, I feel like, as I said during the campaign, said after the campaign, I mean, Joe Biden was, you know, came of political age in the 80s and 1990s. And in that era, it was considered the smartest, shrewdest, most savvy politics to triangulate yourself against the base of the Democratic Party. If you were a Democrat, you back in that era, it was like awesome to go out and be like, look at me, I'm not a liberal. Look at all those horrible liberals, right? right? Like that was Joe Biden's whole thing. I mean, he literally, I mean, he, he went to the floor, the, the floor Senate speeches where he's like, you know, I love my liberal, my liberal friends, but I'm not a liberal. Look at me. I'm cutting Social Security. I'm like, I'm working with Republicans on the crime bill. I'm doing, you know, right. So the point is, is that I actually think that what this is at, at an at almost a synaptic brain level is that this is his reflex. Like this is when he doesn't have a chance to think through anything. He's like a punch left, punch left, like punch. Oh, socialism. Like I'm not for socialism. Now I think there's a political calculation there too. I think they're, they've sort of convinced themselves that this is their, their way to potentially, I don't know, win Florida or court Latino voters. Now, of course, the, the problem with that as a calculus is, is that Bernie Sanders, the self-described socialist, was far and away the most popular candidate among Latinos in the Democratic primary. So the whole idea that like you have to be kind of explicitly assholishly anti anti-socialist in order to get latinos to to support your candidacy just isn't borne out by anything but i but my but my point on all this is is that we should definitely if biden wins expect this kind of thing to continue and and i want to be clear i'm not saying that that means people shouldn't vote for him in the election or that it means that when he's president you know, there's no chance for progress. It's just something to kind of know, right? As you, as you're, you know, engaging in politics, activism, and the like, is that look? Here's this guy who is going to rhetorically uh, juxtapose himself against right. this this thing called socialism, however he defines it, however it is defined, and that's going to be part of the political parameters if he wins office. It just it's something that's going to have to be navigated. But isn't the danger actually that he won't do that rhetorically, but he'll do that on a policy level? Like we'll have austerity, but he may not need to, he may still punch left rhetorically, but even if he doesn't do that, he's gonna impose an austerity. Look, here's the thing. Agenda. If, 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 if the next president, next democratic president pushes forward a new deal and continues to publicly say, I hate socialism, you know what? That's fine. Great. Like, yeah. great. Sure. Whatever, yeah. dude. Yeah. Great. Yeah. You know, fine. I mean, right. Yeah. Yes. The ultimate fear is that, that Joe Biden is not just going to behave like that in, in word, that he's actually going to behave as a left puncher uh, indeed. And, and, and my fear, the thing that keeps me up at night is first, I mean, Trump winning is a horrifying right. idea, but if, if, if there is another repeat, of 2009 and 2010 in this country, which the way I see it is Obama gets in there during a financial crisis running a very populist, people forget this, running an extremely populist progressive campaign. Now I'm going to crack down on Wall Street. We're going to do all this stuff, right? Gets in there. And what he essentially does in his first two years is protect Wall Street and and, and essentially uh, prop up the existing healthcare system and the existing financial system, okay? That is directly correlated, I think, with people getting pissed off 
and moving uh, to the Tea Party right. and ultimately moving to Trump. And my the thing that keeps me up at night is, it, and I put it this way, if 2009, excuse me, if 2021 and 2022 are 2009 and 2010. Hey, we won. Let's go back to sleep. You know, the de- like everyone just go to brunch now. The Democrats won. We can all disengage. Then 2024 is going to be way worse than 2016 right. with a much smarter fascist. And and that. So in other words, if Biden doesn't deliver, like it's really, really, really a scary kind of situation we're going to be in. Do you think that just not to play devil's advocate, and I and I mean devil because I'm not a fan of the Cuban American lobby. But is could you make the argument that to win Florida, he does have to do that, even though overwhelmingly Latino supported uh, Sanders? Or I mean, I just I just think about it this way, which is you know I'm 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 no great fan of Barack Obama, right? I mean, I don't think Obama, if he was in the same situation, would ever be out there bashing socialism kind of explicitly. And my point in only bringing that up is that there's a way to finesse these questions where you're not being a dick, right? Where you're not like actively kicking the left and by, by the way the, the 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 other contradictory part of this is like you know there's this whole like how dare you consider not voting for joe Biden or voting third party you lefty you know you know horrible people right meanwhile and then it's like turn around and, oh i'm not i'm not a socialist you know those i'm the guys, guy who uh, would beat never the be socialist it's like it's like yeah, you, yeah it's which totally, is yeah. it right like which, like which like pick so my point is only that like obama a much more talented politician would figure out like, look, if I get asked a socialism question, I've got some ways to answer this that both like, like say what I want to say, like, hey, I'm not like Che Guevara, but also say like, I'm not going to like stomp explicitly on the on a, a, a core, a part of the democratic base that's not worth stomping, that I need to turn out to vote for me. Yeah. If only he hadn't been Cuban American, he could have responded with fat, listen fat, or told him to go <laughs> vote for Trump. But yeah. Just, just to go back to what you were talking about for a minute ago, David, what does the Democratic Party direction look like in a world where Donald Trump doesn't exist and they can't run against him every day? Because it's kind of the same as yours. They're going to keep doing the same dumb shit. Uh, and the next person isn't going to be as stupid as Trump. Shouldn't they be worried that the next guy isn't, gonna, isn't going to be that stupid because he has been? Like, if they, they see their populist argument to him and... What if the next guy doesn't punt it away, you know? Right. I mean, look, I, that's the thing I am I fear, right? When you look at somebody like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or a, a number Carlson. of those, those Tucker Carlson, right, good point, right? I mean, th- those people are, I'll put it this way, less buffoonish than Donald Trump. Arguably, they are more politically savvy than Donald Trump. Uh, and and therefore they are a lot scarier in that they will be harder to demonize for their kind of day-to-day antics and behavior. Um, and I, I don't think the party has thought all that much, party leaders have thought all that much about it. I think, look, the, the, the tragedy of, of the current election, which people have said in all sorts of different ways, is that essentially... Donald Trump is probably the most beatable incumbent Republican uh, president that we've ever seen in, in our in our lifetimes. I, I don't think there's there's ever been one that's more more beatable because of his behavior and because of his sort of out of control antics. And the party ultimately used that opportunity 
to put up Joe Biden. Uh, and Joe Biden being the most charitable way to describe him is, you know, sort of a, a, a standard dead. issue caretaker style Democrat. Oh, dead, you said? Yeah, politician. <laughs> and, and, and the party did not use the opportunity to put in, uh, nominate a more FDR style candidate. By the way, whether that was Bernie or somebody else, right? It was just, just forget about if it was Bernie or Warren or maybe some somebody we're not even thinking about. But the point is that there was this historic opportunity. The party used this opportunity against the weakest uh, Republican president to to put up Joe Biden. So that that's a huge thing to mourn, even in God willing, Trump is defeated. Moving forward, it goes from something to mourn to something to be terrified by, because if you think that another version of Joe Biden, whoever it is, Biden himself or somebody else, but that kind of politician is equipped and adequate to defeat a much smarter, much shrewder, uh, much less uh, flamboyant uh, Trump style fascist, essentially, then I think we're in that, that that's a huge mistake. It's going to require in four years actually delivering for you know, materially improving the lives of Americans in a way that the Democratic Party really hasn't done uh, since, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Now, yes, I, I can already hear like, you know, the Obama folks out there saying, oh, well, what are you talking about? The, the Democratic Party didn't materially in, in, uh, improve people's lives. Like the economy was decent or better than it was uh, under Obama, or the economy was better than it had been uh, under Clinton than it was under, you know, George H.W. Bush. So is, but, but that argument is really, is, without taking away some of the accomplishments of depending of the on who, who you're talking to, by the way, that, that's the business cycle, right? Like the, the last two democratic presidents have essentially relied on the business cycle to, you know, sort of improve the macro economy while the micro economy has, has not improved. It's gotten worse. So what it means is I think to prevent the kind of nightmare that we're talking about, Matt is like this party with Joe Biden as the president, is going to have to deliver in a way that the party has not delivered in decades and decades and decades. Now, without sounding you know fatalistic about it, what I I think one thing that there is a, a reason to hope okay. is that Biden is not exactly a um, what I would call a conviction politician. Right. So he is much more a thumb in the wind machine style politician. So. I definitely can see that his his sort of innate political reflexes are to side with kind of the establishment that juxtaposes itself against the base of the party. But I also think competing with that is he's like, look, I, I just like want to do I want to I want to be known as a great president. I want to like reflect the, the sort of dynamics that are out there right now. And if he gets enough pressure and that pressure is like, listen, you, we will credit you. You'll be the great hero. You'll, you can be the Superman, you know, greatest right. president ever. If you do these things, like, I think that's the challenge among, uh, down ballot Democrats who get into state legislatures, among activists, among organizers, among advocacy groups, is to actually force him to do what needs to be done. And then when he does it, be like, hey, dude, you're the greatest. You're, you're amazing. Like, even though you're, you're not really amazing, but like, you can be amazing. You can be the hero. But how do, so how do we do that, though? Like, what are the political pain points or pressure points um, uh, from both, like, from us, as, you know, from people uh, who aren't in power and then people who are in power? So to my mind, you know, first hundred days, first six months, whatever you want to call it, the Democrats should 
people like Bernie Sanders should be saying, okay, Joe, you may not have campaigned on X, Y, and Z issue, right. like publicly, like rhetorically, but they're on your like website and you promised them. So now you're going to do them, right? Like, like you promised the public option. You never talk about it because you, for whatever reason, but like we're doing a public option. Like that's the first, that's one of the first things we're doing. Like $15 minimum wage, one of the first things we're doing. They could even be uh, sort of more hardball about it and say, let's look at all the things that Biden has, has said he supports in spirit or in letter that are also power moves for our coalition. Example, uh, labor law reform, which strengthens the labor movement, which adds more union members, which is essentially tends to be good for Democrats in winning elections. So, you know, the, the card check legislation, uh, adding DC as a state to add two more uh, uh, senators, likely Democratic senators to the Senate, stuff like that, that's structural, that's both good, good on policy, but also fortifies the strength of the party. To go to Biden and say, listen, you know, you don't get to decide what's coming through a Democratic uh, uh, Congress. We're going to actually use our power, hopefully they take back the Senate, to actually take your agenda that you campaigned on and put it on your desk. I think, you know, what th this whole idea that like, you know, the Elizabeth Warrens or the Bernie Sanders or, or the, the progressive uh, members of the House who are now uh, chair people of House committees, they have to wait around and like, make sure Biden is okay with something like dare him to veto something like yeah. put card check on that guy's desk in the first two weeks and say, yeah, what are you going to do? You're going to veto it. You, you're going to, you're going to, first thing you're going to do is veto labor law reform. Uh, so that's the kind of thing. And so that's, what's going the point of, of, of what should happen in Congress, but like, that's what should be organized around immediately after the election. There shouldn't be like a, Hey, you know, he just got elected. Let's like give him give a little him time chance. to breathe. Yeah, no like, let's defer to him. You, you don't want to defer to Joe Biden. Deferring to Joe Biden gets you like, hey, maybe we should meet the Republicans on a grand strategy on, you know, reducing the, the budget deficit by cutting social. Like you don't want to. So Congress essentially is going to have to be a lot more active. And the good news on that last thing I'll say on that is that individual members of Congress are arguably much more persuadable among rank and file voters in their home districts, in their states, than perhaps it is to push a president all the way up in the White House, right? If, if your House member happens to be, you know, subcommittee chairman of, of a key committee, or your senator is on, you know, the tax writing committee or the or whatever committee, like that actually gives a, a relatively small number of voters, a, a, a comparatively smaller number of voters, an ability to actually move those people. And I'll give you one example. There's one fascinating example here. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm working on this for another project, but Matt, you may remember this, that, that uh, Blanche Lincoln, uh, who was basically a conservative Arkansas Democratic senator, uh, very finance friendly, all of a sudden during Wall Street reform in 2010, she faced a primary challenge back in Arkansas. And all of a sudden she was like, oh, I'm going to lead the charge for serious uh, derivative reform, legislation yeah. to crack down on Wall mm -hmm. Street. Now, it ended up getting gutted because, you know, she she won her primary and then she kind of backed off and it got good. But the point is, is that all it took was like one primary against one incumbent senator to get a senator who is chairman, a chairperson of a key committee to actually put legislation in and push it in a, in a real way. So the point is that that happened. Now imagine that happening in 10, 10 states or 20 congressional districts. Like that's how this is going to have to go down. Last thing for me, uh, David, you've been in, in the inside a campaign this year and there've been lots and lots of surprises electorally, like 
how reliable is polling? And uh, every everybody basically has Biden running away with this now. How much do people believe that? And do, what do you think is going to happen? So on polling, I mean, polling is not, I tend to see polling as like general trends. And if you're within three, four or five points, it's sort of all bets are off. If you start getting above three, four or five points, you're really representing a, like an actual, tr- an actual trend or something that's, that's real, right? So that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that the perception of whether a candidate is going to win, right? There's one of the, the, the a lot of polls ask this question, like, who do you think is going to win? Those actually can foreshadow or, or illustrate momentum, right? It, it, it's like doing well begets doing well, right? So you have a good yeah, week. Right. You, you, oh, I, you know, or Trump had a bad week. This is good for, you know, Biden moves up in the polls sort of, yes, I'm going to vote for Biden on the yes, no question. And then like, I think he's going to win. Like that begets, like people don't like to vote for, for candidates they think are going to lose, right? right. So, so, so that is an important thing to, to look at. And those, those trends are, are in the right direction uh, for Biden. But, but it also all goes to say that like, ultimately, this is a turnout game. And like, you know, the Republican, that's why the Republicans are trying to finagle with turnout with, you know, voter suppression is essentially trying to suppress turnout, right? So, so they know that they're going to be able to turn out their base. And the variable typically in presidential elections is how much the Democrats turn out. Like the Republicans don't have, haven't really had as much variability in turnout as whether Democratic voters are going to turn out. And so that is ultimately the key question. And, you know, as much as I feel like people are super tuned into this election, you know, like everybody's tuned in, you know, that, that that's a real phenomenon. People are tuned in and, and, you know, there's the two X factors are how many people are like, I hate them both. I'm not voting. You know, I, I don't think it's that, I don't think it's like it was in 2016 where I think that was more 19%. of a sizable situation. But then I also think there's like, you know, how much are the Republicans really going to be able to like mess with the vote? I think that's a real thing. Like it, it's hard to know. And, and the thing, and, and the thing to remember is they only have to mess with the vote successfully, potentially in like a few States, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be like they're messing with the vote all over the place. Right. If they like effectively mess with the vote in like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Nevada, right? Like th- that's not a ton of messing with in order to, to get a result that you want. David, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye. All right. That was great. Uh, see you next week. And make sure you rate and review us. Order a mug. Look at this guys. Look, you see this right here? This beautiful mug could be yours. All right. See you next week. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.